Hello, and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I am Jeff Young, an editor and a reporter here at EdSurge, a national newsroom covering innovation in education. Katie Davis has done research on the intersection of childhood development and technology for more than 20 years. And for much of that time, she was frustrated that the conversation around tech in schools and parenting, it so often turned on whether tech was good or bad for kids, or how many hours of screen time were the right amount. But then came the COVID-19 pandemic. And Davis, she's a professor at the University of Washington, she noticed a change. I noticed that just this, this shift in the societal conversation where we all of a sudden recognize, well, we all need technology just to continue on with our lives in some manner, to continue on with work and school, even, you know, communicating with our family and friends. Davis said she heard more people looking at the issue in more nuanced ways. So it's not a matter of should we use technology or shouldn't we? The pandemic forced us to confront that Technology is absolutely essential in our lives, and especially during crises such as a global pandemic. Um, And I think that just forced us to move the conversation from, is this good or is it bad, to ask, well, when is technology good? When is it bad? What what is its role um, or what should its role be in young people's development at each stage of um, their, their progression from toddlers all the way up to emerging adulthood and beyond. This professor hopes to keep pushing for that kind of discussion and to help educators and parents weigh the pros and the cons. She lays out a framework for how to best match technology with each stage of a person's growth in a new book, Technology's Child digital media's role in the ages and stages of growing up. It celebrates when technology can help kids thrive and cautions about when it can get in the way. I connected with Davis recently to hear her thoughts on how to better match technology use and childhood development. And I started by asking her to talk more about how she's seen the conversation change in recent years. I've definitely noticed that um, parents and educators uh, were really tuning in more to look at what are the qualities of technology experiences that really signal that this is a worthwhile experience for a young person to be having or versus, you know, what are the qualities that are not so great? And I think also there's not just the pandemic and the coverage of the way we've used um, technology during and through and after the pandemic, Um, has forced this conversation. But also, during the same time period, there have been a lot of um, policies introduced, um, laws that have been up for debate in the United States and other countries um, that have gained coverage of really um, focusing in on what are those signals um, that can signal whether a technology is supporting children's development or when it's undermining aspects of their development and their well-being. And so I think before I started writing the book, I very few people, my sense was that the average person wasn't familiar with terms like dark patterns um, and design abuses. But I think now more and more people are recognizing that actually there are certain tricks that these tech, um, these tech companies are using to keep us engaged um, and they use things like dark patterns 
um, to keep us on their platforms and engaged. And that's not necessarily good for our well-being. Um, and so I think that we're actually, as a society, becoming a lot more um, savvy about these tricks that technology companies are using. And so things like autoplay on Netflix or YouTube that just advances automatically from one um, video to the next without our having to do anything. That's a that's a, a an obvious pattern um, example of a dark pattern where um, it's the technology design is there to co-opt our attention in a way and keep us engaged for as long as possible. Um, and I think we probably didn't really give much thought to that or had a sense that this was maybe too easy for us to engage for long periods of time on these platforms. But now I think we're really starting to interrogate, well, why is it that these technologies are designed in the way they are? And what effects is it having on our well-being, on our children's well-being? And so that's what I'm really trying to address in this book, is that intersection between the way a technology is designed and um, aspects of young people's development at different ages and stages of growing up. One thing I like is you do go through all these different stages of childhood development up until, you know, emerging adulthood, as you say, and at Surge, we cover all levels of education. So I'm, I'm interested if we could start maybe with some of the unique things um, about early learning um, that you talk about in the book. Um, it sounds like you have a young child yourself. Um, mm-hmm. I have two young kids, so I can relate to this as well. Um, and you mentioned your, is it your son, right? Mm-hmm. That, you, that you give examples in in the book of, of experiences you have with, with him. Um, how old is he now? He's, he, Oliver's now six. So I started writing the book when he was two um, and uh, was all done with it when he was five. So I, it was really interesting. He figures pretty prominently in those early chapters when I'm talking about early childhood. Most of my own research focuses on um, more middle childhood and adolescence. So it was very useful for me to draw on the published research, but see it come to life through, um, you know, looking at Oliver and watching him engage with technology. So um, yeah, so in the early childhood years, I really look at, well, actually at each stage of development, what I'm trying to do is say, okay, What is key during this stage of development for children? What's front and center here? So when we look at early childhood, you know, developing um, of healthy attachment to primary caregivers is very important. Um, Learning how to regulate your emotions and your behavior. So self-regulation Executive function. Exactly. Executive functions are super important. And so I, I take a look at those key skills developmental skills and I take and I examine well when does technology support the development of those skills and when does it not Um, and so there's lots of examples of technology um, use in those early years where it's just too easy for it to co-opt young children's attention in fact you know that that is why many of these technologies are designed to engage us and and Part of the way they engage us is to just keep us wrapped, keep our attention focused on the platform. And for young kids who have um, really still limited information processing abilities um, and their attention is still very much a work in progress, um, this can be, it's very easy to co-opt their attention and really just kind of um, move them from one experience to the next 
which can be, you know, let's let's be real. For parents, it can be a godsend sometimes because you know if you if you just need a few uh, a few minutes uh, to you know catch your breath or to get the um, laundry done or whatever it is around the house, um, it can be very useful to put your child in front of a TV show and automatically they get that stare on their eyes and and their and their their attention is completely focused. Um, but what I argue in the book is that a little bit of that is okay. Um, but if that is becomes the dominant mode of attention where um, you're just sort of relying on some external um, regulator of your own attention and your own behavior, um, if that becomes the go-to for calming your child down or just keeping them engaged, um, that's really limiting um, the ability for young children to develop their own self-regulation skills, to really learn how to calm themselves down, um, to learn how to um, control their attention and decide, well, okay, right now I'm going to focus on this and then I'm going to move on to this. Um, if all of those decisions are always being made by the technology that's in front of them, they don't have any space to develop those skills themselves. No, it's so interesting. And I think um, a lot of parents can relate to, to, to this, especially if parents who've recently had a young, uh, young kid. Um, I want to talk about a phenomenon that you mentioned that I'm sure people is one of those relatable phenomenon. Um, you mentioned this, this thing when you spend time with a, with a child, with your child or with a child, young child, and they kind of catch you looking at your phone, um, that you're not attending to them as much as, you know, they're like, wait, don't look at your phone. And sometimes swatting it away. Yes. If you're very young or, <laughs> and, um, I, I sad to say, like I had this with my own kids, um, it, it, when they were, especially when they were very little, um, but they still sometimes will verbally say it. But I didn't know there was a word for this. Mm-hmm. Um, technoference, technoference, yeah, t- technoference. Yeah. So technoference. That makes yeah, sense. I've never yeah. heard this before. <laughs> yeah, and actually, um, there's there's several scholars who look at technoference, and sometimes it can be in relationships between two adults. But there's a group of researchers who are really focused on. Um, this relationship between parents and their children and how especially parents looking down at their phones constantly can really get in the way sometimes. Um, And you can really, you know, see how kind of important this is because especially for young children, that, um, that, that back and forth relationship between their primary caregivers and them is just so important for developing you know, baseline models of interpersonal trust. How am I going to relate, not just to this primary caregiver, but that'll become my blueprint for relating to people in the future. And if that is always being interrupted by um, a phone or, you know, your primary caregiver's attention being drawn away, um, you know, you can start to see how that can have some pretty important implications. Um you know, things like being able to pick up on your child's cues and um, and tailor your response to them according to the cues that they're sending you. Um, what that requires is for you to really tune into your child and pay attention to what they're telling you, not just with verbally, especially for young people, but, you know, through their eyes and their gestures. Um, and if your eye, your own eyes are being diverted by your phone, um, it's just that much harder to do it. So, um, 
you know, there, there's a lot of concern among researchers and pediatricians that um, constantly being, um, constantly having one's attention diverted away from that parent-child interaction, especially in early childhood, you know, can interfere with that important bond between parent and child. Um, now, there's no hard and fast research that has just has shown, yes, those interruptions lead to these bad consequences. Um, there is, you know, there is research showing that um, it can, you know, on a more of a short term scale, have, you know, concrete inter interruptions and that can be detrimental for, for instance, um, vocabulary learning and things like that. So these concrete skills. The good news is um, that occasional glances at your phone seems to have no impact, no detrimental impact at all. So, you know, parents who are starting to get really freaked out right now can breathe a little sigh of relief. Um, and also one thing that I, talk I am about, too. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, seriously, me too. I've definitely Oliver before he was verbal several times I can remember where he would bat the phone out of my hand, just out of frustration. Um, but, you know, now that he's a little bit older, he's six, um, I actually take his, you know, I, I still, I, I do as much as I can not to um, look at my phone when I'm with him, but I do, you know, when those notifications are hard to ignore. Um, but I try and use them as a learning opportunity um, to really call attention to him and say, you know what, I, I messed up just now, or I really shouldn't be paying attention to my phone. Let's pay attention to the game we were playing. Um, and so instead of, you know, sheepishly putting my phone aside, I try to put a spotlight on it and use it as a teachable moment so that he can know that, yeah, I'm not perfect and I'm doing my best and I'm going to try better the next time. Yeah, we, we are, um, my wife and I try to do similar things where, yeah, we're like that, you know, and to really try to knock into those situations, um, like you say, and, and noting your own screen use, um, especially when you end up talking to your kids about screen use a lot of like amount. Absolutely. Um, and as children get older, there's opportunities to have more um, sophisticated conversations about that. And so you can start to tell them, you know, and explore with them, well, why is it that I'm so drawn to my phone? You know, you know, what about this phone is catching my attention? Is it me as a person who's a failure? Or is there something about the way this phone and the um, applications on it have been designed to capture my attention? And that actually can be a great conversation because so much of I feel the conversation about screen time and technology use, it does focus on individuals and um, individual failure, I think. Um, there's a lot of individual guilt out there. Um, but if we can shift the conversation a little bit um, and put a little bit more onus on the tech companies and how they're actually designing the products, um, I think that can help us have these conversations and shift the blame a little bit away from um, you know, individual family members and kids and adults. Yeah, sort of instead of blaming the user only. Yeah, exactly. But you mentioned there was one example of a dark pattern, um, which is a design feature in these um, technologies that might really be going overboard and pulling someone in um, and keeping their attention, you know, despite what's maybe best for their development. Um, that one of those things is like there was an example of a app for young kids where the characters in it were like crying if they didn't pay attention. Is there, 
it sounds like there's some extreme examples out there in, in kids tech. Um, there if you are look. some extreme examples. Yes. Yeah, so um, my colleague at the University of Washington, Alexis Hineker, and other colleagues um, did wrote this fascinating paper where they actually did an inventory of all these dark patterns that are um, visible and observable in children's um, technologies. And so they documented things like countdown clocks that, you know, add this sense of urgency, like you ha- you must complete this activity before the time runs out. Um, virtual rewards, things like trophies and points and things like that, where you just want to get more and more and more. So therefore, you stay on the platform longer. Um, and even, you know, characters who you're supposed to take care of. And if you exit the platform, then they get upset or they don't flourish in some way. Um, so these are extreme examples, especially with the characters crying or not doing so well, um, where, you know, this is they are designed to keep your child on the platform for as long as possible um, in a pretty manipulative way, I would say. Um, and so, yeah, there are lots of examples of this. And some of them are pretty subtle, you know, things like just making um making it difficult to navigate towards home and therefore be able to easily exit the platform. Um, things like that, where you, you might not even notice that you're having a trouble, a, a difficult time finding your way out, and then you just end up staying on the platform for longer. Um, so there's all sorts of, there's a big range from very overt, like crying characters to just pretty subtle, like um, navigation um, navigation strategies to keep you on there. Um, but all of these, you know, can be considered dark patterns where they're not... Um, they're not really there with your well-being um, placed front and center, but rather with the tech company's bottom line placed front and center. Um, and and what helps their bottom line is if you are engaging with their product um, for as long as possible. There's another surprising bit of research you cited, which talked about some f- features in you know reading apps that sound very very good or a positive feature, but that might somehow get in the way in the wrong setting, which one of them was like a dictionary app or like things that kind of pop up. Um, Could you say more about that? Yeah. So sometimes, you know, as an adult, we may look at some of these educational apps and, and if they have these, you know, features that just seem to augment the learning opportunities like a dictionary. So if you click on a word, you get the definition or, um, you know, there's, um, you know, a sound that's added to some sort of visual and sound effect that's combined. And you think, oh, well, combined, that must be really good, for instance, for learning to read, to hear the word being sounded out. Um, And in theory, these do seem like good ways to enhance the learning experience. However, we have to remember that, especially for young children, um, there's a limit to their information processing bandwidth. You know, if you think of a computer, you know, an analogy to a computer, they have just smaller CPUs than we do um, um, as as adults. And so if you're adding on all these bells and whistles, they can't necessarily handle all of that information at once, whereas an adult could. Um, And so there is, for younger children, you know, apps where you have lots of 
um, bells and whistles added on that seem to enhance the learning experience, but actually it's detracting from the underlying and foundational learning objective. Um, and so for young kids, you want to try and actually steer your children away from the very loud, busy apps where there's lots of things to be paying attention to, lots of things to be looking at. And even like you may think that it seems kind of boring, but um, little kids are actually pretty good at engaging with like very simple, open-ended apps where they can really direct um, the movement and the action and go at their own pace. Those tend to be best. Yeah. Um, what is a good example, right, from for this age level of a technology that seems to to really be beneficial? So I so what what I was very keyed in and um, focused on the different apps that Oliver was using while I was writing these chapters on early childhood. And one app that really stood out for me for him, and I think. Um, can really serve as a good model and easy to look for its similar features in other apps is a, this painting app that uh, we found. And this was when he loved um, Peppa Pig. Um, and so he loved watching the Peppa Pig cartoon show. And so there was a, a, a companion app where you open the app and immediately you're taken to a blank canvas. Um, and so automatically it's just kind of a very quiet experience, um, very open-ended. There's no particular action that is suggested other than choose what painting implement you want to use and what colors you want to use. But beyond that, um, he could decide what he wanted to color, what did he want to draw and paint, um, and how and for how long. Um, there, there wasn't any music going along with it. And Typically, Oliver would spend about 15 or 20 minutes drawing something, and then he would kind of lose interest. And that's actually about the length of time when young kids tend to engage in a play episode, whether it's online or offline. Um, it's 15 to 20 minutes about, and then they're kind of ready to shift to something new. Um, whereas if they're engaged in a video game, for instance, that promises reward after reward for completing certain um, certain challenges, um, they they very quickly move beyond that fifteen to twenty minute um, play episode, and it quickly stretches into hours. And it's really hard to know when to stop and to know um, when to shift to something new. So um, so looking at Oliver's interactions with this painting app made me identify um, and helped me to identify, you know, apps that really are kind of pretty basic, open-ended, and put him in the driver's seat. Um, and this is actually a feature of um, technology experiences throughout the course of uh, child development, young kids, middle age kids, um, no, sorry, middle childhood and adolescence into emerging adulthood is this idea that it should be as much as possible self-directed, um, where the kids themselves are in the driver's seat of their technology experience rather than the technology leading them from one experience to the next. And so really it becomes a question of where is the agency? Is it in the child or is it in the technology? And so that's something that um, no matter what age or stage a child is at, 
Um, that's a question you can ask yourself to determine whether this technology experience is supporting their development or whether it might be undermining it in some way. You mentioned that your a lot of your own research is in middle childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to, to move there for a minute. And what are some highlights of some of the challenges of technology use for that developmental stage? Well, in middle childhood, you get a, you you really move into the video games, um, and then also you know th- there's such a range in where kids are developmentally in middle childhood. Some are still very much children. Some are ready to enter into um, tweens and adolescent years, and really interested in social media. So knowing when a particular child is ready for a particular technology experience can be really tricky um, because kids are, you know, at so many different um, different um, places, really developmentally and maturity. So age wise. alone isn't the answer. It's, yeah, it's more exactly. of something else here in the developmental. If, yes. if you're at that kind of age of, I have a 12 year old, that sounds like somewhere along the borderline here. Right. Yes. 12 is, can be really tricky. And, um, and also I think this um, in middle childhood and entering into those tween years, uh, another really important thing to remember and something that I really try to emphasize in the book is that it's not just this interaction between a single child and this particular technology, but it's also the context of the technology use. And when you're talking about kids in middle childhood and um, early adolescence, a big part of their context is their peer group. And so, um, you, you know, a parent may say, you know, I don't think my kid is ready for a phone, but if all of their friends have a phone. And if the teacher is saying, you know what, your kid needs a phone to do science and for this class and collect data because we're doing citizen science today, um, that can be really tricky. And so um, so it, we really need to think about not just the technology, not just the individual child, but also the context of the use. And that becomes really important as children's um, social um environments start to expand in middle childhood and adolescence. Yeah. And so what, what is your advice there? And it it sounds like a lot of it is trying to look at the individual child when making in the, and and the broader context as you think through these decisions that it's not like a one um, size fits all. Yeah, no, it's really not a one size fits all. Um, And I would say, you know, Um, it's interesting. I've been doing this research for almost 20 years now, and parents today are a lot savvier than they were 20 years ago. And for good reason, you know, 20 years ago, Facebook was, um, well, 20 years ago, Facebook didn't exist, but, you know, around 2004, 2005, parents were just starting to understand or hear about MySpace and Facebook, and they had really no idea. Parents are a lot savvier now, um, there are not, it's not the case that all parents just sort of throw up their hands and let kids um, get a phone and go on social media. It's also not the case that um, 
all kids want to go on social media. I think there's this perception that kids are just chomping at the bit to get online and to get on social media. Um, it's true that many kids feel a tremendous amount of pressure to be part of the social media scene. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're excited about it or happy that <laughs> by the prospect of going online and especially on social media platforms. Um, and so I, I definitely encourage parents to you know, look at the statistics. So with um, Common Sense Media is a great resource there where they do these um, yearly census um, to show how many kids of different ages own a phone and use social media. And it might be a bit lower than um, many parents realize that, especially for kids around 11, 12, 13, it's really not the case that the majority of them have um, smartphones or are on social media. Um, and as more and more um, laws are being passed that you know limit um, kids' access to social media, I think parents are also using that as a signal to delay their kids' entry into those platforms as well. I know, I know you have advice in the book as well for teachers. And I wonder, you know, you mentioned that example a minute ago of the science teacher, you know, having an, a, an activity where a phone might come in. And it does, especially for, you know, that middle childhood and, and beyond, it starts to become more of an issue for how much these tools are in the school setting as well. So what are some examples um, for, what are some advice, what is some advice for teachers at this level? Well, I think for teachers, I mean, I, I started off as an elementary school teacher, so I know first and foremost, there are a lot of pressures that are coming at teachers from many different sides, um, from the school side, from the parent side, from the child side. So it can be really tricky to navigate, especially when you're talking about technology. So some teachers may feel tremendous pressure to use the latest technology in their classroom, um, whether or not it supports the particular learning objective that they have in front of them. But, you know, I always try to emphasize in my current teaching at the university level, but also when I was an elementary school teacher, really try and highlight what is my learning objective here today um, and what is the what are the best tools that can get me there in the most equitable way for the kids that I have in my class. And that is recognizing what tools do they have access to? What am I asking of them? You know, can I really expect them to engage with certain technologies um, either in school or outside of school that they may not have access to? So I think um, really paying attention to what kids have access to, where they are developmentally, what their parents may or may not be comfortable with. All of these are really important, um, important considerations. And so forcing or highly encouraging parents to get their kids' phones, I think that might be a good example of thinking, well, is there a, another way that I could accomplish the same learning objective without requiring every child to have a phone in my class? Is there some, some way that we could kind of pair up or we could use a different technology or is there something we have in the schools? Um, so um, those are some, some of the guiding questions that I would ask myself as a teacher. Yeah. And I guess it's tricky because you mentioned the phone and I don't know so many schools that 
that have phone one-to-one phones, but one-to-one computers are real like iPads or Chromebooks or, and so there is this, and there are a lot of settings that can be placed on these. And I know a lot of schools do try to manage um, the technology or have restrictions, but it seems like more and more students at earlier and earlier ages are thrust in to a technology platform that is useful in many ways in school, but that is exposing them to, you know, YouTube and, and, and some of the dark patterns that you mentioned earlier, where it just auto starts or recommends things um, that may be keeping them online and, and doing other inner dark patterns there. Yeah. And so for that reason, I think that it's really important to not just, <clears throat> I think it's really important to not just introduce these technologies and, you know, provide, give kids an assignment that requires them to use this technology, but also to think about what are the, the sorts of um, literacies that they need to really responsibly and effectively engage with these technologies. And so that's where these broader conversations around digital citizenship come in, where um, it, these are great opportunities to engage students in conversations about what can this technology do um, for good? What what are some of the dangers? And get them to be really reflective rather than just say, we're using this technology today to do this math assignment. You know, there's there are broader conversations to be had um, to put that that math assignment with this technology into a broader context. And so that kids are really prepared when they encounter dark patterns or when they find themselves in places online that they didn't expect to, engaging with content that they probably shouldn't be engaging with, um, they're ready for that and they're ready to reflect on it, maybe bring that to their teacher and engage in the conversation. That I think is really an important piece of this, not just using technology as a tool, but really thinking of the broader ecology um, of technologies and how they're being used. What is an example on the plus side of these tools in the middle childhood um, arena? Well, I think there's tremendous potential. And I mean, a lot of my work is focused on the potential um, of, I think, the the fact that technologies can be so personalized um, is a tremendous opportunity to tailor learning experiences for um, children's many ways of learning. um, And that is children who... Um, are neurodiverse and also neurotypical. Um, we all learn in a lot of different ways, and you know, technologies are really good at diversifying and customizing these learning experiences. Um, I think there, are, one thing that I'm really interested in my own work is how can we um, create interest-driven learning experiences. So our team developed this um, app, which we called Nature Collections, that encourages kids to go outside and start to engage with the nature around them, whether they're in a park or whether it's just the weeds growing out of a sidewalk, um, but to really do so in a way where it's they're leading with the things that they're interested in. And I think technology, especially when it's designed in an open-ended way, um, where you can go in many different directions rather than the, just this one prescribed A to B to C, um, it, there's tremendous potential to um, engage kids in learning experiences where um, it's really leading with their own interests. And so those are the kinds of opportunities with technology in those middle years and beyond uh, that really excite me. 
just to, to to deliver on that promise of moving through the the stages, um, can we talk about the um, older kids and 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 the beyond school ages of some of the some of the issues there that might be unique? Yeah, so absolutely. So still, you know, I think questioning to what extent is this technology experience a self directed one where kids are in the driver's seat, that continues to be a really important question in the adolescent years and the early adult years. Um, And then this question that I also pose um, throughout the book is to what degree um, is this technology experience community supported? And this is really important in the teen years. I mean, throughout, but in the teen years, again, when um, teens um, social um, social experiences are broadening and becoming a little bit more complex, um, multifaceted, and a lot of their social experiences are online. Um, the question of to what extent are is their community support for those experiences becomes really important. So um, I argue in the book that that community support can come from surrounding the technology experience, but also within the technology experience. So for instance, um, if you imagine a teen who is online and in some online um, social media platforms, whether or not that platform experience is supporting their development, a lot of that has to do with the kinds of interactions they're having there, the kinds of um, feedback that they're getting from the people they're interacting with. Um, And there are lots of examples of teens having a really positive experience um, online and in these online communities where they're finding people that are similar to them, that share their um, interests. Um, And oftentimes I've done research um, exploring marginalized teens who are exploring different um, identities and finding that they can really find a community online that's not necessarily accessible to them in offline spaces. And so that can be a great example of community support that is coming from within the platform itself. It can go the other way as well, where there's plenty of examples of harassment and being exposed to, you know, really toxic behavior. Um, And that would be an example of, you know, an experience with technology that is not community supported. And that's where the support that teens have access to surrounding their technology use becomes really important. So the conversations that they're having with their parents and with their teachers um, and even with their friends offline can really help them frame and, um, and place their experiences online into context. Um, and help them to, you know, to reflect on, well, the things that I'm encountering online. So for instance, a teen who's encountering really glamorous images on Instagram and starting to feel bad about themselves, if they can then have access to people offline who can help them place those um, interactions in context and say, you know what, those images that you're seeing have probably been highly filtered or edited um, and no one's life is that perfect. Um, those kinds of conversations can really help and be an important source of community support. So I think that's one really crucial thing to keep in mind, especially as kids get older. We think that they don't necessarily need as much support. They're more independent. Um, but this is where conversations become so important um, to really reflect on what they're encountering and how to make sense of it and sometimes even help them to reframe what they're seeing online. The the good and the bad though, the trick is 
some of these are design um, features, but some of them are users on the same platform in some of these social examples of, you know, the same platform that can support, you know, having people with various, you know, um, unique identities in their, in their physical community, find others like them, um, can also be a place for bullying or a site of, of negative behaviors. So it, it, it just seems so um, complicated or challenging. Absolutely. It's so challenging because in one platform, whether it's a social media platform or a video game, you can have some access to great, great experiences, great learning opportunities, great social interactions, but you can also at the same um, time have access to very toxic interactions and really negative, um, negative community um, interactions. And so that's something that is super tricky. Um, One thing that I talk about in the book to help make sense of how this is all related is I talk about these different tech layers um, and to show how actually the design of a platform can give rise to different cultures um, in these different platforms. So you can have, you know, this first layer of the features, the feature layer. So things like, um, you know, likes on social media or autoplay or, you know, privacy settings, like all these individual features um, can give rise to um, the next layer, which is the practice layer, like things that you can do versus things that you can't do. So, um, you know, having the like button or the hearts or um, having showing your follow how many followers you have, these are specific design decisions that give rise to different levels of visibility um, and make certain actions possible and others not. Um, And those in turn then bubble up to this culture layer, which then sets the stage for, you know, the the culture of Instagram is a little bit different um, than the culture on Tumblr, for instance. Um, And then within Instagram, there are different cultures, subcultures, um, same on TikTok. Um, But they are related to how the platform has been designed. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind that, you know, it's all connected and there are certain, you know, yes, to some extent, you design these platforms and the people who come to them are very much going to shape the culture. But the way it has been designed can nudge behavior in one way or the other. And so I think that's one thing that I investigate and and consider in the book as well. I wanted to get to some recommendations that you mentioned. And you've alluded to some of them as we've talked. But it sounds like the tech industry, the people who build these tools, the companies and and players that put them out, have a, a big responsibility, you say. And it sounds like if I understood you correctly, that you you think it might require some legislation and regulations even outside of companies because of some of the bottom line pressures to to kind of do the right thing and avoid some of the dark patterns that we've talked about. Yeah, I do. You know, I, I think that relying on the tech companies to regulate themselves, that has shown that it doesn't work um, because it's just not in their best interest financially to place um, user well-being front and center. Um, unfortunately, you know, that's just not what it, what makes them a lot of money. And so I do think in that instance that policy is required. Um, 
but careful policy, evidence-based policy. And so one thing that concerns me, especially as we're waiting for some sort of federal legislation to be passed, in the meantime, there are many state-level um, legislations and laws that have been passed, and it just creates this piecemeal um, collection of laws that I don't know how based, how well-based in um, evidence they really are. Some of them, you know, I think the California law is quite good. It's based um, on the UK's um, age-appropriate design code. Um, and so, which you know, law is this in California? Just to make sure our, our listeners are following here. Um, I believe they called it something similar to the um, age. I think they may have called it the age appropriate design code or something like that. But it's modeled on the UK's um, legislation passed, I think, in 2020. Um, but you know, this is really trying to compel the companies to um, take well-being into account and. Um, so, you know, this is something that I think we need more of how exactly you compel them and how they're supposed to measure well-being and account for well-being. Those are really big questions that, um, I think researchers really need to help, um, lead the way here. And, um, that's one thing that, um, our group of researchers at the University of Washington is trying to do is to say, well, if we're going to pass all these policies compelling companies to take well-being into account, how exactly are they going to do that and how are they going to measure it? Um, it's not an easy it's not an easy solution there. It's, it's so much easier to measure engagement, you know, click through rates and things like that. Well-being, that's a much harder thing to measure. Um, but that's where I think research really comes in. So that's the role of of the education community in a large in a way of this once you start to try to hold to account um, these tech companies more. Absolutely. Really getting into the details of what that actually looks like, I think, is where researchers can really play an important role. And I, I guess the um, how optimistic are you that you know, we've talked about how complicated this all is for educators, for the companies, for the users, um, parents and, and, and youth. How optimistic are you that we can get to a place where we can kind of rein in the worst impulses of, of these tech platforms and, and, and tools? Oh, gosh. Well, I, I guess I'm a generally optimistic person, so I, I try to be as optimistic as possible. Um, you know, I, I am optimistic that the uh, our, at least on the societal level, we're having really good conversations these days about what what is it that um, we need to be thinking of. We're definitely um, being more critical these days of the tech companies. We are, I think, as a society, appropriately skeptical of our lawmakers and their ability to um, pass you know, really robust legislation. And I'm hoping that that skepticism translates into more research that will help um, guide um, really good laws. So I guess on on balance, I am optimistic, um, but definitely on the cautious side of optimistic. Yeah, we've written a lot about efficacy research on, on ed tech in particular. And it is so challenging because things move so fast. Um, do you feel like there is a growing um, movement and, and awareness of companies and, and pressure from schools and, and educators to to have more conversations where there's actual data on effectiveness and, and effective use? 
Yeah, I think that the will is there for sure. The thing that's so tricky, especially when you talk about ed tech, is that technology moves so fast, education moves so slow. And I mean, two, those two things are so extreme. I mean, technology moves so quickly and education system moves so slowly. And so that I think is just a huge challenge and it's, it's been that way for decades and decades. Um, and so that's the thing that I, I'm not sure honestly how to tackle that um, other than just keep on trying and having these conversations. Um, I really like my colleague, Justin Reich. Um, the way he puts it is to, uh, he suggests to take a tinkering approach to don't try and blow it up all at once, but, you know, use these technologies to try and um, change things at the margins and see if that maybe leads to greater changes down the line. Yeah, and we and people can go back and listen to our conversation with Justin about about his recent book on that, on just that topic. Um, well, I want to thank you for for sharing all of this um, and for sort of letting us step back and creating helping with this kind of framework for thinking through how to uh, you know the, the use of technology for for, ch- for childhood development and, and education. Thanks for being here. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one. If you like the show, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. And sign up for our weekly podcast newsletter at edsurge.com and look for the word newsletter. This episode was put together by me, Jeff Young. Editing this episode by Rebecca Koenig and music by Rowan G. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.